Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's an uncomfortable truth, I think, that the European Union provided a permissive environment for Scottish nationalism. The closer the links to Brussels, the greater the distance to Westminster. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Our guest this week is one of Britain's leading historians. Brendan Sims is the Professor of the History of International Relations at Peterhouse College, Cambridge. He's published extensively on Britain's role in the world, European grand strategy and the rise of fascism in the 20th century. His books are widely acclaimed and include Europe, the Battle for Supremacy, Britain's Europe, A Thousand Years of Conflict and Cooperation and his latest effort, Hitler, Only the world was enough. Our deputy editor, Frank Lawton, sat down with Brendan for a discussion that ranged from the Holy Roman Empire to the future of Europe, with the odd trip down a Brexit byway just for good measure. But first, Frank began by asking if there was such a thing as historical thinking and whether it was any use to policymakers. I don't think there's such a thing as a straightforward lesson from history. Mm. What I think you have is uh, something which... um, Herbert Butterfield, who was master of my college, Peterhouse in Cambridge. What you have, I think, is is the idea that uh, history kind of seeps into the mind, so it provides a framework, mm. a way of thinking, which is very difficult to define, but it doesn't provide straightforward lessons, I think. Right. Because something that comes through very clearly in, in many of your books is how well-versed our parliamentarians have been in the past mm. about the internal affairs of various European countries mm. and of the history of, of Europe and the wider world. Do you you think that we've begun to lose that edge in recent years? I don't think so. I think there's a certain kind of cultural pessimism abroad that always thinks that things get getting worse (laughs) and people are getting stupider. But actually, if you look even at the current crop of, or the recent crop of parliamentarians, uh, people like Jesse Norman, for example, Paymaster Mm. General, wrote a biography of Edmund Burke and Adam Smith. Um, You have uh, historical works even by the Prime Minister, Uh, which you could argue with at different (laughs) levels. Uh, But, for instance, for all the criticism I would have of him and his European policies in certain contexts, um, he got, for instance, uh, Churchill and Europe more or less right uh, in his book on on Churchill. And, you know, there are other people Mm. one could mention who have written about history and reflected on history. We're often told, it seems fairly obvious, that we're living through historic times. Mm. Do you think that that actually is, is a useful way of going about thinking how we're living in the present. Mm. The idea that 
while we're carrying out actions, we are almost being watched or judged by our uh, future children. If that, is that something that's a, a burden, perhaps, do you think, or is it a useful way of thinking about things? It helps us, focuses the mind? Well, it's both a constraint and a stimulus. Mm. Um, I think it's a kind of a sentiment which is more strongly felt here than perhaps in other parts of Europe, right. because you have a, a more uncomplicated sense of connection to the past. You don't have the same ruptures that you have, you know, particularly between 1939 mm. uh, and 1945. So I think history is perhaps more of a resource that can be drawn upon. Right. Obviously, the ways in which it's drawn upon can be highly problematic. Yes. So the, obviously address the elephant in the room there, which we've touched upon very briefly, though, mm-hmm. is, is the question of Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see that as a sort of continuation of Britain's foreign policy or an abnegation? Well, as I said in my book, you know, Britain's Europe, I said that it, Brexit was neither uh, a coincidence nor was it um, entirely preordained. Mm. I think you can see in the past, not merely the re- recent past, because, of course, it was a very close vote, mm. uh, but also in the more remote past, going back hundreds of years, that you have uh, two very clear strands in British thinking on Europe, broadly speaking, those who engage uh, and those who, who stand aloof. And even those who engage aren't necessarily those who regard Europe as something that you want to be part of as a political project. Yeah. So I think that kind of history informs the Brexit debate. Mm. Um, and it could go in could have gone in both directions. I mean, nobody would have been surprised had um, Remain won, in which case we would be now emphasising much more those strands in British history which seem to point to that result. It it occurred to me when reading your book, Britain's Europe, that, as you say, there are these two kind of dominant strands Mm. in in British foreign policy thinking. Is that something that is fairly unique to Britain? You know, you've done a lot of work on on Germany Mm. recently, you've done work on France. Whether there are similar debates going on internally in those countries as well about whether to look you know, mm. to the continent or to look to the blue waters or if that's something that's particular because we're an island or something particular about our own story? Well, I don't know the, uh, all the national debates, yeah. obviously, yeah. in Europe. I mean, the, the places I know best are Germany, as you say, mm. uh, and then overseas the United States. Mm. Uh, and there you have an interesting contrast. The United States, in some respects, has a very similar discourse, uh, one of which is, broadly speaking, isolation, and engagement. Uh, in fact, the American Revolution, in some ways, is a product of the foreign policy pressures. Actually, mm. uh, many American patriots felt that the British Empire hadn't been activist enough in Europe yeah. or against European powers overseas, and that's one of the main reasons for the revolution. Um, and the debates in the United States, in some ways, are continuations of debates that we had in this country in the 18th century with, yeah. of, between Whigs and Tories. Um, in the case of, of Germany, of course, you have the rupture, mm. and therefore you don't really have a sense of continuity between, let's say, the 19th century debates uh, or even the early, early 20th century debates and the present day, even though some of the structural factors are quite similar. For instance, the central location of Germany. Yes. But uh, German politicians and diplomats, for very understandable reasons, are a bit cagey Mm. on drawing on that tradition because it would then lead them uh, to places where they wouldn't want to be. Jumping off from that, we're doing this project at CapEx called A Liberalism in Europe where we look at the political Mm. and the economic uh, threats to liberalism on the continent. And something that often crops up in the media is the idea that we're living through 
both in Britain and in Europe more generally, a sort of echo of a siren call of the 1930s. Mm. And I was just wondering whether you think that there's any sort of merit in that. I don't think so. I don't think there's even the remotest chance of a general right-wing surge in Germany Mm. because the public sphere is so sensitised to anything that would reek of a relapse into national socialism or even into the kind of nationalism you had during the Wilhelmine Empire. Admittedly, you know, with the uh, Alternative for Deutschland and and other groups, Mm. uh, you have a a stronger right-wing and in some cases even extreme right-wing fringe. But I don't think we're anywhere near the 1930s. The only comparison with the 1930s that might be halfway helpful is perhaps the appeasement analogy with with Mr. Putin. Right. Because we have, of course, uh, uh, accepted his annexation of the Crimea uh, and the war that he started uh, in eastern Ukraine. And while he's obviously not Hitler uh, and Russia is not uh, the German Reich of the 1930s, Mm. There are, I think, certain disquieting parallels there about the way in which we've handled this. So, so you do, would agree then that Putin is probably the most destabilising force within Europe at the moment or the, the greatest threat to sort of liberal values in, in Europe? Definitely. Uh, not only in the sense that he presents a direct uh, strategic challenge, particularly in the Baltic states mm. and in Poland, so to the eastern flank of the European Union and of NATO, but also within the European Union, particularly in places like Poland and um, Hungary, but also, um, you know, in, say, France, where the extreme right is close to to Mr. Putin, and also in Germany, you see the really the, the emergence of, a, of an alternative identitarian nationalist discourse. So, yes, I think uh, Mr. Putin is, is a threat both in the foreign policy sense and in the sense of domestic politics. And that's where we might then start to draw out cliche lessons from history then is that what you might argue then that 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 type of parallel gives us some room for thinking about the present obviously you know we're not back in 1938 (laughs) um, and we need to be careful that we don't jump to conclusions Mm -hmm. or that we don't escalate a situation because we think we're facing a new Hitler but I think there's enough there to make us anxious Mm. Um, and to that extent the analogy is useful just then to pivot back to the question of, of Brexit, really, and, and something, again, that has come through in your writing is the effect that Europe has had on Britain's constitutional designs. Mm-hmm. I always wonder, that seems to be now be back on the table mm-hmm. um, after the general election result. There's the questions of succession in Scotland, uh, the Irish question, where you sort of see things mm-hmm. going. It seems to fit the mm-hmm. thesis, the present seems to fit the mm-hmm. thesis that, that you've outlined previously. Well, historically, the reason for the existence of the United Kingdom in the form that we have it goes back to really two impulses. One is to find a structure that resolves the relationship of the nations Mm -hmm. on our islands, so the English, the Irish, the Scots, and the Welsh, and that is effectively preventing uh, England or the English from dominating the others. Uh, But also uh, a strategic impulse, which is partly due, due to the need to uh, on the English side, to rally the entire resources of these islands mm. against a European hegemon, but also to prevent a European hegemon from exploiting uh, the fragmentation of these islands, so using Scotland or Ireland in particular as a backdoor into England. Mm. So the United Kingdom that emerges in 1707 and then, of course, uh, enlarged... Um, sorry, the Great Britain and then United Kingdom, uh, 1707 then enlarged in 1800, 1801 with the Irish Union, 
both of those measures um, are in the context, in the first case, of the War of the Spanish Succession, so rallying uh, the British Isles against Louis XIV, mm-hmm. and in the latter case, in the context of the Revolutionary and Napoleonic, Napoleonic Wars, so rallying the combined force of the United Kingdom against the external enemy. Now, of course, Brexit changes that calculus. But I think it's not at all clear what the outcome of that change will be. Mm. Because while it is true that in the short term, Brexit puts the constitutional arrangements, the United Kingdom, under pressure by virtue of the fact that you know 60% of Scots uh, voted uh, to remain and uh, 55% of people in Northern Ireland voted to remain, I think it would be a leap, a stretch, um, in fact, something that is not at all likely that this will lead to a fragmentation of the United Kingdom. And the reason why I say that is, first of all, because the fraying of the bonds of the United Kingdom in advance of Brexit were already very visible. Mm. So you had the, as you know, the um, referendum in 2014. So this was at at a time when there was no prospect, really, of Brexit. And yet uh, independence was seen off only with a small margin. And it's an uncomfortable truth, I think, that the European Union provided a permissive environment for Scottish nationalism. Mm. The closer the links to Brussels, the greater the distance to Westminster. And actually, Scottish independence economically was only really possible in a context where both an independent Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom were part of the European Union. The minute they diverge, of course, you have the prospect of a hard border separating Scotland from at least two-thirds of its markets. Mm. So my prediction, and of course I'm an historian, not a prophet, but my prediction would be that there will be quite a lot of surface turbulence, Mm. but that ultimately... Brexit makes Scottish independence less rather than more likely. Interesting. So you think that one of the ironies of Brexit won't be then that we reject federalism abroad but adopt it at home? You think there'll still be some sort of way of avoiding that? Or do you think naturally we won't have Scottish independence but we will have a greater sort of federal system? Well, that will depend on whether there is a remoulding of the British constitution Mm. after Brexit. And as you know, there have been quite a few discussions around this, whether Mm. there should be some new federal settlement. I think these suggestions will ultimately impale themselves on one very simple fact, which is that England is much, much larger than any of the other nations, and that the English have no desire, because they've been asked and they've Mm. rejected it, to divide themselves into regions. And therefore, any federal system that gives England as a whole a separate role will effectively mean handing over the governance of of the entire United Kingdom to England. And the whole argument for the United Kingdom in the first place from the point of view of domestic politics was to give the Irish, the English, uh, the Irish, the Scots and the Welsh a voice by head in a Westminster Parliament which would be in effect running their affairs anyway. Mm. So In other words, to to put it simply, if you have independence or self-rule for England, you will have 
uh, no self-rule at all or participation at all for the other nations. Yeah, and that would be a deeply sort of a liberal <laughs> settlement. That it would. It would be the, the opposite of what was intended. Yes. People don't seem to realise that the United Kingdom is also an instrument for the containment of England. Yes. I say this as an Irishman. The English are very patient <laughs> people, and they put up with this, and I thank them for it. Uh, but I think that would be lost yes. if you had a, a different system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And speaking of Ireland, then, just to, to move across the water mm. a little, are you worried about questions of resurgence of Irish nationalism? Do you think that we'll, we're moving perhaps to a, a unification of Ireland at some point? Is there a difference qualitatively of the debate we're having when we're talking about Scotland to mm. the debate that we are or should be having about Ireland? Yes, there is there's a background of a prolonged uh, campaign in Northern Ireland, the Troubles, and that, of course, had its solution in the Good Friday Agreement. Mm. And the Good Friday Agreement was not in and of itself predicated on the European Union. Yeah. If neither country were in the European Union, we would still have the Good Friday Agreement. And, of course, the troubles continued. They more or less started at the time when both Britain and Ireland were about to join mm. what was then the EC. Um, and both countries were part of uh, the European uh, economic community and, and subsequently uh, the EC and I think even the EU um, for a while um, until the question uh, was resolved with, through the Good Friday Agreement. What, of course, you can't have is one country in and one country out without the troubles or the difficulties we've seen over the past couple of years. Now, as to whether this means that Irish unity uh, is close or even you know, a medium-term prospect... I would tend to think not. It's certainly, in my mind, no closer than it was before Brexit. Mm. The first thing you have to bear in mind is that um, in the Good Friday Agreement, there's a clause, it's always been the case, that if there's a prospect for a majority in Northern Ireland for uh, unity, then that referendum has to be had. And that, that was always the case. Now, does Brexit mean that that majority comes closer? 
not necessarily, because they're like in Scotland, there's a double majority in Northern Ireland. Mm. That is to say, there's a majority for the European Union and there's a majority for the United Kingdom. And I think just as in Scotland, the majority for the UK Union trumps that for the EU Union. I think that will ultimately be the case in Northern Ireland. And I think it would be actually very damaging for Irish national, the Irish national project to have a premature referendum, which would be seen off, uh, as seems likely at the moment. And that, in fact, is not what uh, moderate nationalists are calling for. The much bigger danger, and that's the one I'm really anxious about, is actually the fraying of relations between the Dublin government and London. And I think there's a lot of ground there to be made good. There has been some improvement Mm. in the last few months. But I think that Dublin and London, having been so long at, at loggerheads over the past couple of years, perhaps now can find a way to help restitch the relationship between the UK and the EU more generally. Right, so be almost a mediating uh, partner. Yes, an advocate yes. for uh, closer relations with the UK. Yes. I mean, just stepping back then, so the, the fact that the Union came into existence really as a, as a bulwark against uh, any European hegemon, do you think the fact that we've seen these threats to the Union is actually a symptom of something rather positive, both paradoxically, that... There has been no European massing of power in the mm. way that you've you know, written about in, in your biography of Hitler and you've mm. written about um, when talking about the Napoleonic period and, and, and in other places, that actually the last sort of 60 years, the European Union hasn't been um, seen as some sort of hegemonic threat mm. to the UK. And actually, this negative is actually a symptom of something that's potentially rather positive. Well, the European Union challenges the United Kingdom in one very important respect, especially now that the United Kingdom is leaving and is no longer part of the decision-making process of the European Union, which is that so much of Europe's legal and economic life is now dominated by the European Union. Mm. And so you have a clash, really, between the geolegal and geoeconomic ordering system of the EU and the geopolitical or geomilitary ordering system of Europe in which the United Kingdom has a much bigger role. And I think the trick will be to find some kind of compromise or trade-off where the European Union and the UK find together in some form of confederation, Mm. that they restitch this relationship. Obviously, it won't be the same, um, but there's a great deal also that the European Union stands to benefit from good relationship with the UK. So how then do you see this all affecting Europe? Um, with Britain outside of it. Mm. I mean, I, your position on, on Europe is an unusual one, perhaps, mm. in, in the general public debate. Mm. Um, so what would you hope to see the direction of the European Union go in? Well, what I'd hope to see, and I have been calling for for some time, is a full political union of mainland Europe, mm. which needs to have the same union that Scotland and England had in 1707. And perhaps this would be an even better analogy, Uh, the um, United States had in uh, the late 1780s. And that's the only way of stabilizing the currency, securing the border, and deterring people like Mr. Putin. Mm. I think Brexit uh, both helps and hinders that project. I was always of the view, and I wrote in in my various publications, that Britain would never be part of this project. Mm. Not that I wouldn't want it to be. I'd be delighted if it had been. It would have greatly improved the project, but for reasons to do with history, uh, the European Union is not something that the United Kingdom needs in the same way as other European 
countries so, be, needed. Because? Because the United Kingdom was a victor power in the Second World War. Yes. So the European Union, very crudely speaking, gives mainland Europeans something that they never had or lost mm. in the 20th century. Um, and in the case of uh, Britain, very broadly speaking, although there are many economic benefits and other benefits, in a sense it was fixing something that wasn't broken. So you have, and I'm speaking again very crudely, a sort of a um, gradient as you go from west to east yes. uh, in, in Europe. And therefore, the United Kingdom, for historical reasons, doesn't need Europe uh, in the same way. So having Britain out of the European Union gives the European Union a chance, therefore, to push forward with integration projects. Right. The, so that was a necessary condition for what I've been calling for. It's not a sufficient condition because, of course, the European Union since 2016 hasn't done this, uh, it now, but it now no longer has Britain to hide behind. They can't say, we would like to do this, mm. but the British won't let us, yes. or we don't want to frighten the British and cause Brexit. It removes the brake. Yeah. It removes the brake, but just because you remove the brake doesn't mean that the car moves yeah. forward. And so I think really now it is up to mainland Europe to progress this on its own. Mm. Do you, think, do you think then that there's the sort of liberal governments in Poland and in Hungary, mm -hmm. particularly in the east uh, of Europe, are a threat to this project? Because there's often there's talk of you know, the tensions mm -hmm. within the various countries of the European Union. I think they're clearly a threat, but I would also resist the idea that illiberalism is particularly stronger in the east. Right. After all, the National Front is a huge party yes. in, in France. Uh, AFD is not small mm. in Germany. And... Probably one of the most distressing uh, vistas we've had over the last couple of years has been the situation in Catalonia, yes. where certainly European conceptions of the rule of law have been overturned, and you've had the imprisonment of, of, of essentially uh, peaceful uh, protesters and a peaceful movement, which is calling for uh, a national state within the European Union. Yes. So... I think there are just many, many threats to this project. Some of them are illiberal threats. Some of them are liberal threats. Some of them are conservative. Some are left-wing. Anybody who clings to the separate sovereign na nation-state in mainland Europe is an obstacle to the full political union of Europe. Mm -hmm. So it's as if the English were, were sticking to the English national state. Yes. Listening to you there, we talked earlier about the ways in which the present situation in Europe and in the UK are not like the 1930s. Mm. Um, but still, this sounds quite worrying <laughs> when mm. you articulate it like that. It doesn't have to necessarily uh, lead to the horrors that, mm. that came after the 1930s, but are you optimistic about where things are going, or do you see some sort of uh, dark foreboding um, down the line? They should worry us, but my anxiety is more around fragmentation Right. rather than the emergence of some demagogue who's going mm. to take over the whole of Europe. I, I just fear, the model I fear, is that of the old Holy Roman Empire, that right. simply is dissolved in 1806, or Poland, which is just successively partitioned mm. in the course of the 1770s and the 1790s. If you ask me you know, what the prospect is, I am a perennial optimist. I think that... Uh, Europeans, to paraphrase Churchill on the Americans, will finally do the right thing, uh, but only once they've exhausted all, our, all other options first. 
Professor Brendan Sims. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.